this case, moreover, it is required of stewards that one be found trustworthy. But to me, it is a very small thing that I may be examined by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even examine myself, for I am conscious of nothing against myself, yet I am not by this acquitted, but the one who examines me is the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for just a wonderful day in you, and Lord, we thank you that uh, we can gather and worship you and that we can... uh, have the freedom to do that, that we can uh, sing our praise to you and we can express our gratitude to you. And Lord, we uh, pray again tonight as we look at your word that you would help us to be edified in your truth, that your Holy Spirit might be our teacher. We thank you that we have uh, that resident truth teacher in us. And so, Lord, we pray again tonight that you would Help us to grasp what you have for us, and not just mentally, but uh, as far as um, heart application and and our desire to please you, that it would be uh, acceptable in your sight. So, Lord, we pray again tonight you would bless uh, as we worship you in Jesus' name. Amen. The Corinthians had a lot of problems in the very first one. The one Paul spends the most time on, the one that was foundational to all others, was the problem of division. In fact, you could say that all the other problems likely contributed to the division. And the division made it more difficult to deal with the other problems. The witness and effectiveness of his church was being crippled by this. And it was serious enough that Paul devoted four whole chapters to it. And as we have seen, the division was a result of two primary factors. The exaltation of human wisdom and the exaltation of human leaders. And you can really break these four chapters into two halves. Chapters 1 and 2 deal with the issue of exalting human wisdom. While chapters 3 and 4 deal with the issue of exalting human leaders. And then we would have to say that underneath it all, as kind of a root cause, if you will, was the fact that these believers in Corinth were fleshly. They were carnally minded. They were worldly. So, where we are tonight is right in the middle of the section on dealing with the problem of exalting human leaders. And you know what I'm talking about. They were lining up under certain men. Paul, Peter, and Apollos, all of which had been their pastors. And they were ranking these men according to their own desires and preferences. And the result was that cliques had developed in the church Personality cults had developed based on which of these human leaders that they liked the best. And Paul's message has been, essentially, there is no reason for this kind of thing because all of these men have been 
given by God for your benefit. There's no reason to line up under any of these men, especially if it results in division and strife in the church. But what Paul does in the first five verses of chapter 4 is to lay out the proper way that we should see our pastors. He gives us the standards for understanding our spiritual leaders in the church. What is the biblical criterion for evaluating shepherds in the church? How should people in the church view them? How should the pastors view themselves? These are the issues that he's dealing with here. And by the way, this is very different from the way people often judge pastors today. Most of the time today, pastors are judged by the size of their congregation, or the size and quality of their church buildings, or the size of their staff, or the degrees behind their name, or how many books they've written, or how high up the denomination they have risen, etc., etc. But God doesn't care about any of those things. He has a totally different criterion. In fact, I would go so far as to say that this kind of judgment is offensive to God. And here in this text, we're told why. So let's jump in here, and we're going to take this in four parts. The first thing we see is the regarding, the regarding. Look with me again at verse 1. Let a man regard us, that is Paul, Peter, and Apollos, in this manner, as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Paul says, here's how you are to see us, as servants of Christ. But there's more here, because the word for servants there is a word that is better translated slave. But there's even more because the word for slave there is not the common word for slave. It is a word that describes the lowliest of the low. It is the word huperetes. It literally means an under rower. This was a galley slave on a ship that was in the worst possible form of slavery. This word later became synonymous with a subordinate, but it represents the most menial kind of servant. So Paul says, this is how you are to see us. We are slaves of Christ. Consider us galley slaves, under rowers, the lowest of the low. So what's his argument? It is that they were ranking these men, but no one ever ranks a galley slave. Who is Paul? Who is Peter? Who is Apollos? We're all slaves of Christ. So why are you ranking us one above the other? And by the way, notice that he says, regard us as slaves of Christ. Too many times in the church, people get the idea that the pastor is the minister of the people. No, pastors are really 
servants of Christ. And people talk about the pastor serving the people, but the Bible says he's to serve Christ. Now, of course, the more he is faithful to serve Christ, the more affected he's going to be in serving the Lord's people. But his highest priority must be to serve Christ. Now, why is this perspective important? Because a lot of pastors get so caught up in serving the people that they end up getting their priorities out of whack. For example, some pastors are so busy running around to the hospital and to the nursing home and visiting uh, this person and that person and having lunch with this person, they never study They're never in God's Word. And when that happens, they're really not effective in ministering to anybody. They're no longer doing what matters the most, which is feeding the people of God with the Word of God. Pastors need to remind themselves that they are servants of Christ first and foremost. And the people need to remember that they are slaves of Christ And therefore, they should not be ranking one pastor above another. Paul saw himself as a slave of Christ. And he understood that the only reason he was even useful was because the Lord chose to use him. This has to be the perspective of a pastor. In fact, turn with me for a moment over to chapter 9. Chapter 9. Let's look at verse 16, is what it says there. For if I preach the gospel, I have nothing to boast of, for I am under compulsion. For woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. Preachers of the gospel have nothing to boast about. We are under compulsion. We are slaves of Christ. We just do what we're supposed to do. Necessity is laid on us, but woe to us if we do not do what we are called to do. The word woe there means judgment. The pastor is called to preach, and he will be judged by Christ if he fails to do that faithfully. This is why we have nothing to boast about. We're just doing our job. It's just what Christ has called us to do. And in the case of Paul, he would say, you know, I was just going down the road to Damascus, minding my own business, when all of a sudden I found myself a preacher of the gospel. I found myself a slave to Christ. So I have nothing to boast about. Necessity was laid on me. In fact, in verse 17, he says, For if I do this voluntarily, I have a reward. But if against my will, I have a stewardship entrusted to me. In other words, if I choose to do this on my own, then someone might be able to praise me for it. But this was a calling that was placed on my life by Christ, and it is a stewardship that He has entrusted to me. Pastors are servants of Christ. Their accountability is to Christ. It's not that they don't care 
about what people think, but Christ is the one that they are to please, not people. And if I am truly a slave of Christ, then my primary responsibility is to obey Him. I must obey His orders. You say, what are His orders? Take His Word and give it out. That's, that's His command. That's it. That's what I'm called to do. I'm not called to be creative. I'm not called to be innovative. I'm not called to be a Christian comedian and make you laugh. I'm called to be faithful in the proclamation of God's Word. I'm not to give my opinions, as brilliant as they might be at times. I'm not to give you my great ideas. I'm not to give you some sort of psychological boost or devotional lift. I'm to give you the Word of God. That's my mandate. And notice in our text what he says the minister is to give out back in 1 Corinthians 4. What is it? The mysteries of God. The mysteries of God. What is that? Well, the things that were once hidden but have now been revealed. The teaching of the New Testament, which completes the Holy Scripture. And our text tells us that pastors are stewards of those mysteries. If you've ever been on a ship, then you know what a steward is. I'm sure you've flown in an airplane and you know what a steward or a stewardess is. They're the ones that hand out stuff, right? They bring you food and drinks and pillows and headphones, etc. And think about it. None of that stuff belongs to them. The company owns it, but they're the ones that bring it out and give it to you. Of course, you pay for it, as you know, but you know what I mean there. The steward is not the owner of The Bible says that a person who manages someone else's property is a steward. He was often the manager of the entire household. This is a steward in the Scripture. We see the concept of stewardship in the Old Testament in Genesis 43 and 44, where Joseph had a steward in Egypt, And his steward was responsible for taking care of guests and preparing meals and settling all of his accounts. He was the household manager. The steward was also responsible for managing uh, all the slaves in those days. The word steward is the Greek word oikonomos, which comes from two words, House and manage. Someone who manages the house or household. Sometimes this included running the farm, taking care of the vineyard, providing food and supplies for everyone in the household. Now, biblically, all Christians are stewards. We know from Scripture that We are given certain resources by God, and we are stewards of those resources, including time, talent, and treasures. And we will one day give an account to God for our stewardship. 
and how we have managed those resources. In fact, technically, we would have to say that everything that we have in this life is borrowed from God. It is all temporal. We will not take any of it with us when we die, but we can invest it in eternity. We can send it on ahead of us to heaven, and there the Bible says we can never lose it. If we invest in the things of eternity and we send it on ahead, we can never lose that. But the context in this passage applies to pastors. Titus 1.7 says, The overseer, the pastor, must be above reproach as God's steward. Pastor teachers are stewards of God's household in a unique way. Overseers are called by God to manage His household. And God has given us some goods to give out. What are His goods? What are we to dispense? The mysteries of God. The truth of His Word. The revelation of His book. We're to take the truth of God and give it out to His people, His household. I'm a waiter. That's my job. I just take the food from the kitchen and serve it up. That's my responsibility. I'm not to spice it up on the way out. I'm not to change it in any way. I'm just to serve it exactly as He gives it to me. My job is to take it from the kitchen and serve it to His people. I can't mess with it in any way on the way to the table. I must take it from the kitchen and take it directly to the table just as God has given it. This is so critical for us to understand because it's easy for preachers to distort and twist God's truths. In fact, turn with me for just a moment over to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. 2 Corinthians 4. Look with me at verse 2. But have renounced the hidden things of dishonesty, not walking in craftiness, nor handling the Word of God, notice, deceitfully, but by manifestation of the truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. Paul says something very significant here. He says that preachers must be careful not to handle the Word of God deceitfully. We must not communicate it in a dishonest way. We're not to turn our preaching into our own craftiness. No, what are we to do? Manifest God's truth in such a way that we can have a clear conscience before God. The Word of God is to be given out exactly as He has given it. We must not distort it in any way. We must not add to it or take away from it. We must not give our own opinions. We must give His Word as He has given it to us. That's why anything other than Bible exposition 
is not really biblical preaching. It's not pleasing to God. Preachers, overseers, pastors must give God's Word. We're commanded to preach the whole counsel of God. The Bible tells us that all Scripture is inspired by God, and it's all profitable for His people. But we're to be like waiters and take it to the table exactly like we took it out of the kitchen. We must be faithful to communicate the original author's intended meaning. It's not, what does it mean to me? It's, what does it mean? What is the original meaning as inspired by God's Spirit? We must be committed to giving the original meaning, the original author's intent. And for those of us, those of you who might be considering becoming teachers of God's Word, understand that there is a heavy responsibility to get the message right. No one should ever teach Scripture that is not committed to spending time in study and committed to understanding what the words mean and what the context of the passage is and what the original meaning is. That must be your goal. Now, you probably know this, but you can prove just about anything you want from the Bible. If you take things out of context and read your own meaning into it. I've seen people use the Bible to justify all kinds of sin. You know, cheating on their wife or making a case for homosexuality. But we're not to handle the Word of God deceitfully. We're not to distort its message in any way. This is a sacred responsibility for all preachers and teachers of God's Word. The Bible is not to become a proof text for my opinions or my ideas. It is certainly not to become justification for my sin. The Bible talks about rightly dividing the word of truth. What does that mean? It means to cut it straight. We have to cut it straight. same word is used in Proverbs 3, 6 to talk about a straight road or a straight path. What does this mean in practical terms? Well, it means that when we proclaim God's truth, we're to head straight for the proper meaning. We're to make a clear path to the intended meaning of the passage. We're to make it as clear as we possibly can. We're to create, as it were, a straight path to God's truth. We're not to twist it around or make it confusing in any way. We're not to turn it into some sort of winding path and we eventually, finally we might get there. No, we're to head straight for God's intended meaning. In fact, turn with me for a moment to Paul's instruction to Timothy in 2 Timothy 2.15. In the New American Standard, it reads like this, Be diligent, to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, handling accurately the word of truth. 
But the King James is the most well-known, and it reads like this, Study to show yourself approved unto God, a workman that needs not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth, right? Rightly dividing the word of truth. Listen, no one will ever rightly divide the word of truth unless they are willing to what? Study. That's the word. You have to be willing to study. That is the highest priority for every preacher and teacher of God's Word. It is so critical because we have to get His Word right. Some pastors do everything else under the sun except study. What a shame. Well, we've got to move on. There's a second thing that we see here, and that is... Turn the page too quick. The requirement. The requirement. Look with me at verse 2. Back in 1 Corinthians 4, verse 2. In this case, moreover, it is required of stewards that one be found trustworthy. What is the requirement for stewards? They have to be trustworthy. They have to be dependable. Those of you who have employees... What kind of employees do you want? You want dependable ones, right? You can't stand over them all day long, so you have to trust that when you're not supervising them, they're doing their job. This is critical of stewards. God is looking for those that He can count on to give out His truth in a faithful manner. And notice... What the requirement is not. He doesn't say a steward has to be educated. He doesn't say he has to be glib and articulate. He doesn't say he has to have a dynamic personality. No, he says he has to be trustworthy. He has to be faithful. I mean, think about it. When you boil it all down, faithfulness is permanence and consistency. It's not an almost thing. It's an always thing. Old faithful is not the largest geyser, nor does it reach the greatest height. But it is by far and away the most popular geyser for one simple reason. You can always count on it. That's why we call it old faithful. Think about it this way. If your car starts... One out of every three times. Would you consider it faithful? If your employee shows up three days a week, would you consider him faithful? If your refrigerator quits every now and then, would you say, oh, well, it works most of the time? Pastors must ask themselves the question, am I faithful To preach the Word of God week in and week out. Am I consistently giving the people what counts the most? Do I study the Word of God consistently? Am I really faithful? In Matthew 24, 45, Jesus said, Who then is the faithful and sensible slave whom his master put in charge of his household to give them their food at the proper time. 
Blessed is that slave whom his master finds so doing when he comes. When the Lord returns, he just wants to find his servants doing what he's called them to do. Faithful, not successful. Faithful, not popular. Faithful, not innovative. Too many men in the ministry are so busy doing all kinds of other things. They're not being faithful to what God has called them to be. They're not being faithful as those who are to be about giving the mysteries of God to His people. I mean, think about it. What does being trustworthy mean for one who is a slave? It is to do what the the Master commands, right? That's what it means to be faithful. And what has the the Master commanded us to do? To dispense the mysteries of God. To give out His Word. That's it. That's the requirement. But there's a third thing that we see here, and that is the reckoning. Look with me at verse 3. But to me, this very small thing that I should be examined by you or by any human court. Stop right there for just a moment. What is Paul saying here? He's saying that his evaluation does not come from men. The word examined is the word anacrino. It means appraised or evaluated. He says, I'm not going to be examined by any human court or by any of you as far as my ultimate accountability goes. What difference did it make to Paul what these Corinthians thought of him or whether they ranked him first, second, or third? Zero. Absolutely none. It meant nothing to Paul. Paul is saying, I could not care less what your evaluation of me is. Now, that's not to say that he did not care about these believers. Of course he did. But the point he's making is that the ultimate evaluation of his ministry did not come from them. Then he he says this, in fact, I do not even examine myself. Human evaluations can be faulty. Even self-evaluations can be faulty. We tend to think more highly of ourselves than we ought to think. We tend to give ourselves the benefit of the doubt and think we're really something. Our egos can easily become overinflated. So Paul says, I don't even trust my own evaluation of myself. It is just as corrupt as your evaluation of me. Look at verse 4. For I am conscious of nothing against myself, yet I am not by this acquitted. In other words, he's saying, I'm not aware of any big problems. I'm not aware of any major sin in my life. But that's not what matters. doesn't matter what I think or what you think. What's the bottom line? The one who examines me is the Lord. It's the Lord. This has to be the heart of every pastor. There has to be the recognition that our ultimate accountability is to the Lord. 
That's what will keep us free from the fear of men. We must understand that our ultimate reckoning is before God. We don't answer to people. We don't even answer to ourselves. We answer to God. In Hebrews 13:17, we're told, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Who will they give an account to? To people? No. To God. To God. And as long as God is pleased, it doesn't matter what people think. It isn't human opinion that should govern what a pastor does. It's the mandate of God. And again, this doesn't mean that pastors should not care at all what his people think. This doesn't mean that he should be insensitive to their opinions or their feedback. It doesn't mean that he can't learn from uh, people in the congregation. All this means is that he is mindful of where his ultimate accountability lies. The primary reckoning will come from God and not men. He's a slave of Christ. And it's before Christ that he will ultimately give an account. Well, there's one last thing that we see in this passage, and that is the reward. The reward. We did not read verse 5, but notice verse 5. Therefore, here's his conclusion, do not go on passing judgment before the time, but wait until the Lord comes, who will both bring to light the things hidden in the darkness and disclose the motives of men's hearts, and then each man's praise will come to him from God. When will the evaluation for ministers come? When the Lord returns, when He comes, at His second coming. That's why we're not to make these kind of judgments now. We have to wait until the Lord returns, because when He does, all the motives of men's hearts will be revealed. Now, when He talks about the things hidden, uh, hidden things of darkness, He's not talking about sinful things here. Because the context here is, is in regard to praise from Him. This is the judgment seat of Christ. Sins won't be judged at the judgment seat of Christ. What will be judged? Whether our works are wood, hay, straw, or gold, silver, and precious stones, right? And notice the key word in this verse is the word motives. The question is, was this man trustworthy? And the key to determining that is, with what motive did he do what he did? What was his motive? Why did he minister? Was it for fame? Was it to be seen of men? Was it to make money? Was it for any ulterior motive? Or was it for the glory and purpose of God? Did he have a sincere desire 
to please the Lord. And please understand, God will not evaluate pastors on the basis of how big their church was or how many people they baptized or how well-known they were in their denomination or how well-liked they were. No, someday their works will be put through the fire and only what is eternal will remain. And each pastor will receive his praise from the Lord for that which was gold, silver, and precious stones. He will hear the words, well done, good and faithful servants from his master. And then it will all be worth it. That is his reward. Of course, it's always nice when people compliment your preaching and encourage you and say nice things about you, but that's not what is ultimately important. It's what the Lord says. It's His evaluation that counts. So how does this apply to the division, the problem of division in the Corinthian church? The message to them was, stop making these human judgments. Stop ranking your pastors who have all been faithful and who will ultimately stand before the Lord and not you. And again, this is not addressing the issue of a pastor who's in sin. That's not what he's talking about here. It's not addressing the issue of a pastor who's not preaching the Word of God. It is addressing this specific problem in the Corinthian church of division that resulted from people lining up under equally faithful preachers of God's Word. So he's saying to them, there are things you can't know about a man's heart, so you're not qualified to make these kinds of judgments. Someday there will be a judgment, but you're not the judge. You need to leave that up to the Lord. This is why there's never any place in the church for exalting one pastor over another. As long as they are faithful, you can learn from all of them. And by the way, it's going to be pretty exciting one day when we all stand before the Lord and a pastor of some small church out in the middle of nowhere receives more praise than the pastor of a megachurch because he was faithful to preach the Word of God and he did it with sincere motives to please the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, we pray again tonight that you would help us to understand this is your way. This is your wisdom. It's your design for the church. So, Lord, I pray for anyone who might become a teacher of the Word of God. They would understand the heaviness of the responsibility. And, Lord, that all of us who are teachers and preachers would know that our job is just to get the message right. It's to rightly divide your Word of truth. It's not to mess it up in any way. It's just to take it from you and serve it up. Give it out just exactly as you have given it. 
Help us to do that. And help us to be a people that desires that for your glory and your honor. In Jesus' name, amen.